beloved, take your copy of God's Word as we look to be ministered by more truth, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll be moving around at the beginning, so we'll just have that as an anchor, but in a moment you're going to put your finger there as we kind of go to some other spots, but let's at least open up to Romans 12 and be reminded that that is indeed our study and where we're at this morning. God's own, the faithful of old, the saints of all time, always have encountered evil. It may feel, beloved, right, in this time in 2024, like there's this new kind of evil, a a new oppression, a new persecution, but there's nothing new for the saints of old. They have always, all of those with faith in God, always have encountered evil. And what is equally consistent in God's word with the faithful facing evil, what's equally consistent has been the saints' response to it. That's what we need to meditate on as we open up this morning. Consider with me, Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was persecuted by his brothers. I believe most of you know that account. Stripped and left in a pit. Far from brotherly love, of course, right? Persecuted was Joseph. Years later, years later, you know the account, God's sovereign hand on Joseph, taken to Egypt, those years in prison, rising in the courts. Years later, when famine hit and his family providentially, those same brothers that were the ones why he was in that plight were face to face with him. You recall there was no revenge or cursing on Joseph's lips. Turn to Genesis 42. Let's just consider for a moment the response of the saints. Genesis 42, verse 25. Remember, he's confronted with them in the account. And here's what the text says, right? And Joseph, verse 25, gave orders. These are to the brothers that stripped him and left him in a pit. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Chapter 43, again, and of course in this account, there's back and forth where the brothers are presented before him. How about this? In the very next chapter, verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin, so it was The brothers before, now Benjamin's before him, one of the brothers partaking in that persecution. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Then, of course, there's one more in chapter 45. Go there, verse 9 to 15. Look at this. Let's pick up the account in verse 9 as a story just unfolds in Genesis. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, this is to his brothers, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You might be tempted when you read this again and say, Aha, Joseph maybe will be tempted to lord it over his brothers. Look what's happened to me. Keep reading. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have, there I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt And of all that you've seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then note this in verse 14. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. You must be saying in some corner of your being this morning with the evil you face, Joseph, have you forgotten how they treated you? Joseph, are you so short-sighted? Are you treating them now this way, yet you fill their sacks with grain? 
You have the opportunity to get back at them. You feast with them. Note it. You give them land and you say you'll protect them and you warn them of famine. You kiss them and you weep with them. We would say, Joseph, Joseph, you bless those that persecuted you? David also was persecuted by his king. Do you remember that? King Saul hunted him down relentlessly. And then by providence, do you remember? A same face-to-face with his persecutor. Saul, he too, David, like Joseph, in the face of his persecutor, did not avenge or curse. Turn to 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel records both moments. Twice, David has the opportunity to take vengeance on his persecutor. Of course, you know the account in the cave, and David cuts a corner of the robe, and then he's struck by it. Afterward, when he comes out of the cave, let's pick it up in verse 8. Afterward, so this is after having his opportunity, right? And the men are like, David, what are you waiting for? Do it. David persuades the men, no. Verse 8, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. Consider this face to face, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, does it say David then took his revenge upon the king? It says David bowed with his face to the earth and did what? Paid homage. Paid homage. Turn to chapter 26, verse 17. Again, David, of course, as the account goes on, has another opportunity, verse 17. This is, uh, again, almost a, a symmetrical account by way of providence would seem to suggest David could take vengeance in this opportunity against Saul, but he doesn't. He doesn't take items as tokens, but says this again when he's within earshot of him. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, listen to this, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den by Darius the king, do you remember that in Daniel 6? After emerging, and he was face to face with Darius, do you remember the account where Daniel tore a strip off Darius? No, you don't. He replied with this in Daniel 6.21, O king, live forever. O king, a blessing to live forever? Our sensibilities would say, Daniel, do you forget he threw you into the lion's den? He persecuted you. Do you remember Stephen? You can turn to Acts 7. When Stephen was being stoned in Acts 7, he did not curse his executioners. Of course, you remember this. You know this, right? In Acts 7, verse 60, look at it. As they were stoning him. As they were stoning him, falling to his knees, verse 60, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And of course, there's Paul and Silas. A few chapters later in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were beaten and incarcerated with their feet in chains, that's in Acts 16, verses 19 to 24. They did not respond with an evening of imprecatory cursing. They didn't scheme up revenge if they could only be free, if they could get their hands on a jailer. But they spent the night, look at this, not only singing hymns, right, verse 25, but look what happens the next morning, verse 29, when God frees them. And the jailer, realizing, of course, they're free, called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas don't say, Oh, that's very convenient, jailer. Now you're caring about salvation. You incarcerated us yesterday. They didn't trade blows for blows. And then what did they do? They bless him with the good news. Verse 31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's a blessing. Westmont, I trust you see, as you turn back to Romans now, I trust you see, the question before us this morning is, saints, where 
is the response the wicked deserve? Are you thinking that? Where is the response that the wicked deserve? Instead, the saints of God do what? You saw it. There are many more examples we could go to. They bless in the face of evil. They show honor in the face of persecution. They show mercy to their persecutors. They sing in evil treatment. And they share the gospel with those that persecute them. Do you see it? Beloved, note the enduring testimony in God's word in the face of evil persecution. Listen, as you've just seen, the righteous do not mock in return. They do not hate. They do not take up arms against. No, nothing like that. In fact, if you look closely at these accounts, really look closely and meditate on them and others, you realize something. The saints have a very active response to evil. Did you catch that? It's a very active response. They do not just sit back. They actively sit forward and they do what? They bless. They bless. The saints actively meet evil head on. And here it is with good, with kindness, with blessing. And they could do so because they knew they had no power over evil to beat it. The more they understood all the saints that evil always is, only ever is Yahweh's fight. And they had faith in the one, the only one that could ever do anything with evil. And that's the key. That's what tied them together and ties us with them. To be sure, and I need to mention this, Westmount, as we begin these verses, there was and there is a time for war. There is a time to physically fight. No question about that. But only when. The sovereign, all-powerful one of the universe says so. Joshua and Judges show that, do they not? And the word of God testifies to man's failed attempts, worked up, sincere as they may be, to fight when God does not give license. Just note this. We don't have time to turn there. Numbers 14, 39 to 45. You would say, how did that go for you, Israel, when you were very sure it was time to fight? Yet, more to the point, and this is most especially true in the New Testament, God's people facing evil and not cursing or defying, but responding with goodness. What we see in the saints in the church especially, here it is, is a thoughtful response. So hard. When evil comes upon us, we kind of lose our sensibilities often, don't we? A thoughtful response. A response with this truth in mind. And here it is. And it anchors our section, we're going to read it in a moment, that good has already overcome evil. The battle is already won. Victory secure. Vengeance is coming, finally and ultimately. But we can now wait patiently for that day with hope, assurance, and divine confidence. Because we know, and this has been true not just in this administration, but in every administration, we know the economy of God. Remember the economy Balak faced in Numbers 22, 23, 24? We know the economy. You can do all you want to curse the righteous, but each and every time God turns it into blessing. It's futile. It's futile. You can try all you want. Evil into blessing. Beloved, we overcome evil with good because Christ already has. Saints, we leave vengeance to the Lord because wrath is God's and it is coming. Westmount, we respond to persecution with blessing and here it is simply and directly and straightforwardly because Christ commands it. Christ commands it. This is not a church position. This is a Christ command. Christ command. All of this is precisely what God's word teaches us. So let's look now. We'll dive in. Start in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Let us pray. Father, we ask and pray that you would give us eyes to see this text this morning. Lord, help us as we wrestle with the evil in this world, the evil that comes upon us. Let us see what you've given us in picture and prescription. Let us see your son, Jesus Christ, what he lived and what he taught. And God, Father, may we go out and live it to your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Overcome evil with good. That theme, the last verse there, is the unmistakable theme of these verses. When persecuted, bless. Repay evil with honor. Your enemy is hungry, feed him. That's the economy of the gospel life in an evil world. And it is our command. Let's now consider such appropriate living. Living that overcomes evil with good. And that's our first point, an appropriate response. Appropriate response. Let's begin in verse 14. It says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Very clear. When persecuted, what does the text say? When persecuted, bless those who do it. Do not curse them. Bless them. Beloved, let's just take in verse 14. It's very clear, isn't it? What is humanity's, though, default response when they're treated badly? What's the default response? I'm going to get you, right? You see this played out in the theater of children, don't you? They have unbridled sensibilities, just a... Uh, an unrefined sense to how they're going to live life, very raw, very young, and they just do it. Very, very common. I'm sure recess monitors, you might know this, in schools and homeschool groups, push me, I push you. That's what you deserve. And you know, there's a sense in our flesh, we recognize an economy of justice. Well, you can't just get away with that. But you need to see even for the child, and this is going to help us for next week, Our solution is, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. How does that get us? But that's our response in Adam, right? That's an Adamic response. You hurt me, I hurt you, sometimes more. We get older, the only difference is, I just got to make sure I hurt you back more, right? See how wicked we are? But the Christian, praise God, is no longer in Adam, Christian, We are in Christ, hence our name. He is our head. And as we consider responding to persecutors, we consider first, this is where we'll hang our hat first, on expectation. What's the expectation as a Christian? Christ, our head, said in John 15, 20, remember that word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will what? Also persecute you. Did they persecute Jesus? Can you expect to be persecuted? Of course. So number one, I think we go derailed with our expectations. So many people, like, I didn't see this coming. Well, we would say, well, you should. You will be persecuted. If the Heavenly Father is revealed to you, the Son of God, and you confess that, you will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. They were being persecuted. Peter wrote to them as such. So an appropriate response is not surprised at evil persecution. Secondly, an appropriate response for those in Christ follows Christ. This is logical too, is it not? On the cross, Jesus said what in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? This is what Jesus did. Let's be clear here. Jesus did not just sit back in his persecution. I think we need to just be shed of a passive Jesus. An active Jesus shared truth with Pilate. An active Jesus cared for his mother and his disciples. Mom and John. And he blessed and begged mercy of God the Father. That's activity of the Christ. On that note also an appropriate response is a personal response. This is so important. Jesus, along with Joseph, David, Stephen, Paul, and so on, did not offer up, we read the accounts, not these vague prayers for evil works in general, God take evil out of the world, or heavenly platitudes for good things. It was a very personal response, right? Joseph didn't just fill more sacks, right? As a therapeutic thing, I just got to fill grain. He filled his brother's sacks, and he gave it to them. 
right? Stephen said, forgive them. The onlooker said, the one with the stone about to kill you, forgive him. This is an active, personal, directed response to the one mistreating you. That's our Lord. Always. They blessed the saints that went before us. Always they blessed those who persecuted them directly. Mark that. In the movie Tortured for Christ, I do recommend it if you can stomach it, Tortured for Christ. One of the persecutors in one scene of the captured saint Richard Wormbrand is about to enter his cell to beat him and torture him. It's a true story. He's in the cell, the torturer comes in, and he has his head bowed, and basically he said, what are you doing? He says, I'm praying. He says, oh, you're praying, and I'm praying for you. That's the picture of response. The man that's about to beat him, I'm praying for you. That's an appropriate response for a follower of Christ. Like Stephen, like Richard, sharing union with Christ. Right? They're only going as their Savior did. And they're only doing as he did. Right? It's an appropriate response. Now, a couple things before we move too quickly off verse 14, which we might want to. We sometimes are honest with ourselves. These kinds of things are just uncomfortable for us, aren't they? Because we have a flesh. Blessing and cursing, number one, this is important. Blessing and cursing are not light matters in God's word. So as much as you hear or see a title like overcome evil with good, and you might think, well, that sounds very new age. That sounds very much like the order of the day. And is there a bit of mindfulness in there and all of these things and screaming a pillow, going to room or whatever it is? No. These are serious things. Blessing and cursing. See Deuteronomy 27 and 28. These are heavenly condemnations and blessings. So they're very, very serious things too. Blessing and not cursing our enemies is only possible with regeneration and a renewed mind. So we do have to say, beloved, and I love you to say this, if we really are struggling with this and we're not doing it, we have to question our regeneration. And we have to question if we're renewing our mind. Because you can do it. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus did it. And you must too. And you have all the housing to do it. Listen. It remembers what the gospel life, the renewed mind remembers what the gospel life requires of us. It's only what Jesus did for us. That's what a a renewed mind does. It says, ah, as Jesus, so I Romans 5, 8, and 10, it remembers this. While we were still enemies, what? Christ died for us. You see that? That is blessing in persecution. This is the ultimate blessing in the face of our evil towards him. Thus, as Christians, responding to evil with blessing is fitting and follows Jesus. As we move to verse 15 now, look at it with me. We will see appropriate responses, not just for persecutors, by the way, but really for all people whether they be hostile or hospitable. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You might be wondering why this is a command. You might say, isn't this natural? And of course, we have to comment, sadly, no. Because of sinful jealousy or pride, we at times do not rejoice with those who rejoice. Think of the older son and the prodigal son. He should have been rejoicing, right? And that's true for us, sadly, in other domains, is it not? Sinful jealousy or pride. We don't, because of spite or a malicious heart, we at times do not weep with those who weep. Our flesh will say, I'm glad, finally, justice is served. Wicked things. This is inside and outside the church. By the way, this is... Why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, what? All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are connected. We must rejoice with each other. We must weep with each other because we are one body. Church with regenerated hearts and renewed minds in the gospel of God, we can rightly share joy and sorrow appropriately with all men and women. Now listen, this is not just in the church. Paul is overlapping here and speaking of all people. Now, to be clear, saying that, we want to be clear as we think about sharing joy or sorrow with unbelievers. 
To be clear in this text, it does not mean we share joy with everything the unbeliever thinks warrants joy. Is that not true? 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Genuine love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Sometimes we cannot laugh at that joke. Sometimes we will not applaud that law. And a lot of times, we will not attend that wedding. If it is truly good, we rejoice alongside all men and women. Listen, this is not something where we just have the corner on goodness too. If it's good and God has allowed it by his common grace to be manifested with the unbeliever, we rejoice with them. And if it's sorrowful with them, we shed tears with them too. If it's true tears of sorrow, not crying over good, but true, true sorrow, we weep alongside our fellow men and women always before all. Without these guardrails, Westman, we cannot fulfill the next command. Look at verse 16. So we need those guardrails in place. Verse 16, look at it. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with one another. The idea here behind that expression of in harmony is to have a common mind. In fact, we could literally render this, have one-mindedness. Now, to be clear, this is not cookie-cutter uniformity. That's a cult, right? That's a cult. This is being of one mind. This asks the question, what unites us? At Westmount Bible Chapel, here's the question in this room. What unites the believers here in this room? Not methodology. Not preference. The mind of Christ, right? That's what unifies us with all its wonderful stripes in the body. And that kind of harmony is only possible if we actually do have one mind. Do you see that? If we don't have the mind of Christ, well, it turns out that unity actually is impossible. That's why it's so futile for the world. They keep wanting unity, but they don't know how to go about doing it, do they? Because unity is only possible in the cosmos through one agent, and that's Jesus. There, there's unity in no one else but Jesus. And body of Christ, here's the glory. Do we have unity in him? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, 1 Corinthians 2.16, we, plural, have the mind of Christ. We may make individual different choices and have different preferences, but the choices in life that's coursing through our week this week courses through the one mind, the same mind we have. It's beautiful. Now, we may all have it, but the exhortation here suggests we don't always use it. This is our problem, isn't it? We have the housing, we have the engine, we have the body, but we don't use it. This is our penchant for the lesser things, isn't it? As we studied back at the beginning of this chapter, verse 3, the biggest barrier to our internal accord and harmony isn't even just lesser things. It's what? Verse 3, ourselves. Look at it. Verse 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. This is our problem, our great malady, right? In flesh. We not only refrain from thinking of ourselves too highly, but verse 16 says, do not be haughty. This is a huge, huge plague on us. By the way, look at that in verse 16. It's literally, do not think lofty of yourself. So you see the commonality there in this whole chapter. And with that, look at the very tangible expression of how you don't think too highly of yourself. Look at it associate with the lowly. Associating with the lowly. This, by the way, this is the mark. It's the mark of the Christian because Christ condescended, right? Associating with the lowly, you and me. And as Christians, we do the same. We associate with the lowly. As Christ condescended, Philippians 2, and came and associated with the lowly, beloved, so do we. The fellow lowly in the saints, and note this, the common lowly, the common lowly. And brothers and sisters, we, let's apply this verse rightly. If there's no harmony among the saints, how can there be harmony with others? I appreciate what one commentator said. He said this, I quote, When discord enters into the Christian community, the possibility of doing any good outside it are gone. Is that not true? How in the world can we do anything good out there if we're not good in here? That's the point. 
Pride makes this a battle, inside and out. That's why Paul adds this. Look at the end of verse 16. Never be wise in your own sight. This is a command because we're so prone to this, aren't we? Beloved, we will never relate to others rightly if we don't esteem ourselves rightly. Let me say that again. We'll never relate to others rightly if we don't esteem ourselves rightly. And our problem in relations often is we're not esteeming ourselves rightly. And as this text has already shown us, it's not that we have low self-esteem. Self-fixations, self-focus, self-loftiness, this is our problem, says the Bible over and over and over again. But, Westmount, we're Christians. Such is the mindset and the different framework of an appropriate response now to ourselves and here, to our text now, to evil. It is humble, harmonious association, rejoicing and weeping in kind, all while responding to persecution with blessing, not cursing. And you say, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That sounds like Jesus. It does. Next point. Appropriate repayment. Verse 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Now that really sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Repay no one evil for evil. Yes, it does sound like Jesus because it is ultimately God's law, right? And it is a law in principle that's been unchanged. It's an eternal law, unchanged in each one of its expressions from the garden to Sinai, to the law of Christ. Let's look at one of those expressions. Turn to Exodus 23. Lots here that would be familiar, because we're still within view of our Exodus study a couple years ago. Let's just read a portion of the law. This is the Old Testament Mosaic law. Let's read an expression of this law. And these are always helpful for us because I think we have preconceived notions of the old law, right? This is what some in church history got themselves into trouble with, thinking there's a different God of the Old Testament than there is of the New. Now let's read this, Exodus 23, 1-5. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Wow. Before we turn back, I just want you to look at verse 5 there for a moment. Consider for a moment the self-justified response, the, the court of one. My enemy's ox... It's God's providence that it's in my hand. Thank you, God. Of all the places I could have gone, and my enemy's ox is right here. Well, of course, God spoke to me and said that I must take it because he's shown me. My enemy's ox is right in front of me. Like when you leave the big box store, and the extra items in your cart, and you go to the parking lot, and you turn, and you're supposed to say, they, they didn't charge us for that. Well, big evil empire, big box. Well, of course. We got something free. Thank you, God. It's your providence at work. Like the opportunity in a cave for a shepherd being hunted by an evil king. David, now is your chance. Capital P providence is at work. Turns out capital P providence was at work, just not in the way our flesh says it is. Back to Romans 12. Keeping that item or slaying that unaware king, or even that ox would be wrong. Wrong. Why? Two reasons. One, if you do that, it is repaying evil for what? Evil. Right? Number one, this is fundamental. The ox is actually not yours. You didn't pay for that item. And that is the king the Lord's anointed. It's wrong. It's wrong. Secondly, not only is it wrong, but here's where the text takes us. That should just be understood. Two, it's wrong. One, but two, there's no honor in that response. You see that? There's no honor in that. End of verse 17. Give thought 
Don't just react with watered-down providence. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is a mental engagement in the face of evil. This stops and says, yes, that's my enemy's ox, but it's still his ox. Yes, that item costs a lot of money. It's unpaid for. We're scot-free, but we didn't pay for it. That's stealing. And that man in the cave is the Lord's anointed, regardless of what he's doing, what law he's passing, or what he's doing to me. Give thought in the face of evil. This is mental engagement in the face of evil, and we don't do this. Yet, beloved, see this appropriate repayment does when evil is upon us, says the word of God here, first and foremost, foremost, does not repay evil for evil. This cannot be in us at all because it's not in Christ. And further is repayment. It seeks and gives thought to do the honorable right thing. So again, and see this, and I know I keep pressing this, but it's just so important in our day and age. This is not passivity. Just sit back and don't repay evil at all. No, can we vanquish that? This says, look to do. Sit up and do what is honorable. Verse 14, and that is good for evil. Good for evil. That requires a tremendous amount of activity, doesn't it? It's far from sitting back. Most simply, this is repayment that always involves what is good and right. Again, return an ox, return an item. Maybe hold a tongue, spare a life, repay with the good. That's the economy of the Christian. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but what? Always seek to do good to one another. It's so clear, isn't it? And note this, not just to one another and to everyone, Paul says in verse 15. And to everyone, inside and outside the church. I love that clause that Paul gives there to show whoever it is, you don't repay evil for evil. If you're really struggling at this point in the message, just sit tight for next week. I get that it's a struggle, especially if you've really faced evil in your life. But this is why Christ came. So I'll have more to say on that next week. Saints, consider the goodness of God in this appropriate repayment. Repaying evil with good is not only honorable and right, but look at this. This is amazing. It's a blessing. It is a blessing. Consider the command. We talked about First Peter. Consider the command to the suffering saints in that first letter that Peter wrote. I'll read you First Peter 3, 8, 9. Listen to this. Finally, all of you. Now remember, he's writing to a group being persecuted severely, it would seem. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. The same. You see that from Romans 12. Sympathy, brotherly love. A tender heart and a humble mind. That is Romans 12 language. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, what are we to do? There's nothing new here. What's the economy? Bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Incredible. Appropriate repayment comes with blessing. It's honorable in the sight of God. It's the right thing to do. It's honorable And it turns out God blesses us when we do that. But it's even more, it's peace. Look at verse 18. It says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As evil comes and it sustains, Christian, we are called not to limply endure it. And I hope you don't walk away this morning with that from this message. We don't just limply endure it and kind of roll over limply. Okay, just keep it coming. No. We don't limply endure it, nor do we mock it or provoke it with our conduct. But we are called, look at the verse, to seek peace. In the face of evil, the text says, live peaceably. Listen, and please be reminded of this. We do stand up to evil. We do not cave, ever, ever. We do not bow. We do not rejoice with wrong. And we call it out every opportunity God gives us. Look at verse 18. If possible means it's not always possible. Think of Daniel. It's not always possible, is it, in the face of evil? And look at verse 18 even more. Another principle, so far as it depends on you, means what's in your control, Christian? This begs the question in this evil world, are you, Christian, living peaceably in this world? Your words, your actions, your attitude, your posts, 
your public displays. Are you living peaceably with all men? Christian, we do not capitulate to evil. We do not participate. We stand up. But we do that and look at this. This is our peace because this betrays our peace when we don't do this. Overcoming evil in this world by seeking peace. Verse 18, so clear, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why? Romans 5, 1, because we have peace with God. More on that next week. By the way, Paul does not allow for excuses here. He doesn't say, yeah, you know what? Actually, reader, I get it. I get it. That evil, in one sense, it's overcoming you. Give in. No, there's no license for behavior that's not peaceable. No evil repayment at all in this text or anywhere. Listen, this is not some unrealistic ideal thrust upon the church at Rome in just 10 years from when this letter was written. In just 10 years, an evil man by the name of Nero would descend upon this church and bring evil like the early church has never seen. To that group, this letter is written. There's no pre-decade marching orders, right? To say, okay, this is how it's going to go down. No, you respond with good. And let's be clear again. Paul has no idea of compromise in view. No rolling over in view. And please, not this. Not stay out of trouble for the sake of a quiet life. God forbid. This is seek peace. Seek peace. When evil courses through society, and I don't have to tell you it is right now, right? What of your repayment? You do not repay that evil with your own evil or fleshly desires or passions. You seek peace. And I know what you're saying right now. Well, how do we do that? How do I do that? Because it's an evil world. Turn to 1 Timothy. How do I do that? 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for who? All people. For who else? Verse 2. Or who specifically? For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Wow. Do you see what's tied together there? Prayers and the godly quiet life. What Christian is your activity in this evil world? Like you do with your relatives? You do with evil lawmakers. You pray for them. And the question for all of us, myself included, are you? Are you praying for them? That's your weapon in Christ. Are you praying for them? Because there's only one thing that matters. We think a whole bunch of things matter here and now. One thing matters before Christ comes again, and you know what it is? That they would repent. That's it. The evil will be taken care of. We'll see that next week, right? Evil will continue to course through this world, of course, as people get turned over, Romans 1. The question is, will they repent? Do you love, do you love enough to pray for those that are perishing? Or is there so much angst in your soul for the evil that's going on? And we can, because he showed mercy to us. Oh, God, would you show mercy to the kings in high places? That's the appropriate repayment that the saints are continually called to. Joseph, David, Daniel, Stephen, Paul, we could go on and on. This is the testimony of the saints, how they responded to evil. And you and me, beloved. And one more as we close for this week, Christ Jesus, of course. Some of you are saying, what about Jesus? Sounds like Jesus. What about Jesus? Yes, let us, beloved, as we close, consider the response of Jesus. Right? We must. Let's consider Jesus. And we must consider him before we go any further and continue next week. I'm very mindful. Again, I'm with you as we take this journey, as we face evil and what we want to do. What of Jesus? Because Westmont Christ informs both our appropriate response and our appropriate repayment. Let's close with this first. Let's consider the picture in Christ. The Apostle Peter gives us this. Turn to 1 Peter 2 again. Let's consider the picture of Jesus in the face of evil. How do we follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian facing evil? Verse 20, for chapter 2. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it? You endure 
In other words, you deserve it. If you sin and you're beaten, you deserve it. But if when you do good and suffer, which is the economy of the Christian, right? We're doing good and we suffer. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. We all want that. Verse 21. For to this you've been called. Beloved, look at it. This is our calling as Christians. Because Christ also suffered for you. You see what Peter does? He says, as Christ, so you. Leaving us, what? An example so that you might follow in his steps. This cannot be clearer, Westmount. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There it is. This is the cross. That's your picture of the cross. This is where Christ took on our payment and offered it to God. While we were enemies, Christ responded to our evil by giving us good. This is the ultimate evil and the ultimate good. Do you see that in Jesus? That's the picture. Salvation. While we were enemies, he said, I will give you salvation. And in that salvation, we have a new position that informs our repayments. Our appropriate repayment then recognizes that Christ responded to our evil with the blessing of eternal life. That must stop us in our tracks. Now, in Christ, as his body for lesser things, how can we, beloved, respond in any other way other than responding to evil with good? And this sets us up for next week. How can we respond to evil and say, no, 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 Jesus, I got this one. I know it's evil, I got it. No, we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. Jesus did not respond in reviling or threats. He actively entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Again, more on that next week. And listen, the vengeance of Westmount, the vengeance of God, says the text. Now, the picture of Christ and his death and our new position in him is enough, or it should be. But that's not all the New Testament gives us. And if you're still really wrestling this morning, then we need to see not just the picture of Jesus, but the prescription of Jesus. The same Christ before the cross taught us this. Go to Matthew 5. Tyler read the first part of this chapter for us. Hopefully to just get our minds thinking on the teaching of Jesus. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ taught his disciples specifically. Think about what Tyler read for us in those first 20 verses. Who are the blessed Think about particularly verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This will happen to you. I know we'll have more to say on this next week. Blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on whose account? My account. Right? We take things so personally. But ultimately, when we proclaim Christ, all the afflictions and persecution is directed at him. Let us then read Christ's instructions to his followers in light of the evil. Let's pick it up. Scroll down to 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So clear. And then this, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's First Timothy 2. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And then this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In one most practical sense, perfect living is responding to evil with good knowing that it's been overcome in the Christ. That's it. That's what Jesus is teaching us right there. You should recognize, by the way, as we just read that, Romans 12 in Matthew 5. See how it's all connected together. There's no mistaking it. Christ says, look at verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. Wow. In fact, actively do this in the face of evil. If he slaps you on one cheek, offer the other. Takes your tunic, offer your cloak. 
Note, by the way, the very personal offense of this persecution. This is how you respond. Christ says, look at verse 44, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. That's what Jesus is saying. Pray for those who persecute you. I trust, Westmount, we see it at this point. Again, to close, this is not passivity. Some of us hate that thought, right? We hate the word passive. We just hate that thought that we would be sitting on our hands doing nothing. And I hope you're encouraged this morning. This is complete activity, is it not? The issue is maybe it's not the activity you want, right? That's the issue. It's just not the activity that you want. We would rather respond and react with something more legal or carnal. But remember, Christ is the end of both of those things, Romans 10.4. This appropriate response in Christ by the law of Christ is our new ethic. You are a Christian. So what of justice then? Jason, I'm burning up. What of justice? I can't take it anymore. And that's a great question. Do evildoers get away with it? Who is going to make these things right? That should be your question. And we're going to see that next week. You know what I pray as we leave? We'll see so often what is our impatience is God's mercy. Are you not thankful, former evildoers? Are you not thankful, former evildoers, that God was merciful and patient with you? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We are the chief and foremost of sinners here at Westmount. Oh, but God, you've lavished mercy on us. Lord, bring us to our knees with the reality of your mercy and your goodness. As we seek retribution and vengeance in our own flesh, Lord, we pray that we would be subjected to not only your word and the clear picture and prescriptions we've seen this morning, but to your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Father, we do beg and we we do pray for that help. In him we have everything. In him we have confidence and security, not only for the day ahead, but the day tomorrow. It is in him we pray. Amen.